This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time together this morning. Father, it's a great privilege we have to study your word that we as believers today have such a remarkable resource before us as our own Bible that we can treasure, take home, write in, read every day, realizing that in many cultures, many civilizations, and in much of history, believers had no such thing. Father, we too often fail to take it seriously. We fail, we, we do, and are guilty of taking, taking our possession of your word lightly and so often, Father, in the midst of our prosperity, our spiritual prosperity, we take it for granted. Father, we pray that you challenge us today as we study in your word to realize that the only way that we can be wise, as the Proverbs enjoin us to be, is to internalize your word. It doesn't matter how many notes we have. It doesn't matter uh, how much we've read, what kind of books we have on our bookshelf. What matters is the doctrine that's in our soul, the word of God that we have hidden in our heart. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your truth and that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, we might internalize it, assimilate it, and apply it on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study of Proverbs this morning, which is a guide to wise living. Wise living in in the, um, in the book of Proverbs, the contrast is between the wise and the fool, between the righteous and the wicked, between the person who pursues spiritual truth and spiritual knowledge and the person who is naive or open to all of the ideas and values uh, of the world system. The person who is the fool, the person who is wicked, the person who lives according to the standards of the world is following a path in life that the scripture says appears to be right, but the end is death, Proverbs 14.12. There's a way that seems right to man. It's the internal compulsion to follow the, uh, the trends, the lust patterns of our sin nature. We think it sounds good. It makes sense. It may be coherent. It's a rational philosophy. It fits with how we, how we feel, and so we follow that. But the scripture says there's this way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. So Proverbs emphasizes again and again that we have choices to make. Uh, volition 
uh, as we emphasize here, which is human ability to decide, make responsible decisions. But the key element so often emphasized by people who talk about volition is free will. We have free will. We're so concerned about free will. But the real issue in volition isn't our freedom, it's our responsibility. Responsible decision-making before God is the emphasis. And when we were, when we follow God's word responsibly, the end result as we internalize his word is that we learn to apply it consistently and well, and that's what the Proverbs describe as a person who is wise. One of the characteristics of a wise person is how they use their mouth. Last time we looked at some of the negative passages in uh, the book of Proverbs, warning passages about uh, governing our mouth, speaking too quickly, saying the wrong thing, committing sins of the tongue, slander, gossip, uh, maligning other people, uh, things of that nature. And sins of the tongue are simply a manifestation of what's really going on inside of our soul. So often the sins of the tongue that we're guilty of simply reflect a mass of, uh, of malignant mental attitude sins that are bubbling forth out of our mouth. And the only corrective to that for the believer is to walk according to the Holy Spirit. The only way in which we can um, go, govern the sin nature, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, is to walk by the Spirit, and then he produces the fruit of the Spirit rather than the uh, works of the flesh. And one of those is in the area of self-control of the mouth. Well, we have a flip side to that doctrine that I didn't get to last week and wanted to cover this week in a little more detail, and that is on the positive use of our mouth, how we can encourage one another, how we can speak wisdom to one another, and there's a lot that the Scripture says in the positive use of our, of our mouth. We go back to a verse where we began last time, Proverbs 18, 20, and 21. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips, he shall be filled. And so this emphasizes, as I pointed out last time, that not only do our words impact other people, but they have a reciprocal impact upon ourselves. What we say impacts our own soul, impacts our own spiritual uh, in, in spiritual life. And so this, this verse not only warns us about the impact that we have, but that it can go in one of two directions, and that's verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So last time we focused more upon the use that leads to death. Today, the use that leads more towards uh, life. And this is the picture that we see within uh, the book of Proverbs. The, the emphasis is on our production. This is often the meaning that we find in the imagery of fruit in the Scripture. It is that which is produced as over time in our spiritual uh, in our spiritual life. So we're focusing on how the the tongue, what we say, is really a barometer of what goes on inside of our own soul. Now, that's not a barometer for other people to use to evaluate us. That falls under the category uh, that Jesus prohibited, which we studied last time in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. That's really the idea, as I pointed out. The word judge has a lot of different shades of meaning, a lot of different nuances, 
And there it has the idea of sort of a condemnatory, judgmental, self-righteous attitude uh, up toward other people. It's not the idea that can be present in the same word of making a good, objective, critical evaluation. Uh, For many times in Scripture, we have other passages that talk about evaluating situations, evaluating people. For example, the uh, character qualities required in a pastor, required in a deacon, uh, that calls for judgments to be made for, in the positive sense, a critical, positive evaluation. Uh, but we are not to judge one another, but these are given to us so that we might self-evaluate under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit uh, through God's Word. And so we're going to look at several examples today from some of these uh, Proverbs that emphasize the value, the positive value of what comes out of our mouth. First verse I want to look at emphasizing valuable speech is that it, good speech, righteous speech produces joy in not only in our soul, but it produces joy in the soul of others. This is in Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15, from which I read uh, from this morning in our scripture reading, I read from the first 18 verses, and if you were perceptive, you realize there were several verses at the beginning that talked about the tongue, talked about the lips, talked about what was being said. There are some more that come up later on, but in verses 20 uh, down through verse 23, we have a little section that talks about joy. And that sort of wraps those few verses together around this theme of, of joy. And in the midst of that, we have verse 23, A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. Verse 20, we read, A wise son makes a father glad. But a foolish man despises his father. This word translated glad in verse 20 and joy in verse 21. Uh, joy in verse 23 is the same word in the Hebrew. It's sameach, which has this idea of happiness or joy uh, that we exp- have in our soul. And so verse 20 talks about making the, the parents uh, glad because of the wisdom of children. Uh, verse 21 Excuse me, verse 22, uh, excuse me, 21, folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment, and a man of understanding walks uprightly. And so this is talking about how you have a, a ephemeral joy on the part of the person that is uh, has his focus wrong, but it's just a temporal thing in contrast to the true joy, the true happiness that comes from the person who is applying the word. We want to focus just on verse verse 23, and it talks about the fact that that um, a man has joy by the answer from his mouth, and that's talking about the fact that when we give a right answer to something, then it brings personal joy because we have passed the test, we've said it right, we've done it right. And that means that we have a background of knowledge and understanding of a situation or circumstance so that we can say the right thing at the right time. And that's what Proverbs 15, 23 is emphasizing, is saying the right thing, 
the right way at the right time, and the result is that it brings joy to our own soul because uh, we have handled the situation correctly. Now, the word translated answer is a basic Hebrew word, a knock, which has the idea of simply uh, answering a question, giving a reply to an answer, but in many, many contexts, it adds something to it. It adds a, a, a meaning that emphasizes giving the true, biblically wise answer to the question. It's not just uh, uh, somebody asking you, how do I drive from here to Costco, and you give them the right directions, and they drive over there and without getting lost. It's not That's giving a right answer in a simple meaning of the, of the sentence, but in many contexts in Scripture, it's talking about being able to give wise biblical advice or counsel or response to a situation based upon the knowledge of God's word, the knowledge of doctrine that's in your soul. So it's not as simple as just the English word, which simply involves giving a response that may be right or it may be wrong, it may be foolish or, or silly, but it has to do with giving the right, appropriate, biblically correct Answer. In uh, Proverbs, this noun, anach, occurs some six times, and in each of these cases, it has to do with giving the wise, uh, wise response to a situation. So in Proverbs, it's not just giving an answer that could be right or wrong, it's giving the appropriate, the correct, the biblically the, the biblical truth in terms of, uh, of an answer. It's used that way also in the book of Job. Uh, Job is another book that's often classified as wisdom literature in the scripture. And as Job's three friends talked to him and gave him um, uh, wrong answers to his his dilemma, uh, the, the text of Job in Job 32.3 and Job 32.5 states that they did not find an answer. They don't know the solution to his question of why am I suffering. So they don't find, because they're operating on human viewpoint, they don't find a biblically correct answer. So this is a, a good word to use in the context for uh, the correct response and how to handle a challenging situation, and the emphasis is on uh, the content of this answer. Notice it's in the form of a chiasm. We studied chiastic structure before. A chiastic structure is when uh, you have, uh, for example, in four lines, and sometimes it can be much longer than that or much shorter, the first line states a principle, which is joy, and the last line states a parallel or synonymous idea, which is to express how good it is. The middle two lines, which I have indented in the slide, uh, both focus on the content by the answer of his mouth, and words spoken. Those those words are synonymous and parallel. Now, if you were to draw a, a line, it would go in and out, and it's points. It looks like the left side of the Greek letter key, which is the like our letter X, and so that's why it's called a chiasm. And the center of the chiasm, the part that's indented, the part that's at the very center, even if it's 8, 10, 12, in some places you might even have 20 or 25 different lines in a chiastic structure, it's that center part that's the focal point of the same. It's not that the other part isn't important, but it's the focal point. It's a way of 
putting something in boldface or italic type. Uh, in the ancient world, you didn't have boldface type, italics, underlines, things like that. So they did it through the use of these kinds of literary devices and organization. So the focus here is on the content of what is said, and then the first line and the fourth line emphasize the result of saying something well at the right time. So the emphasis is on uh, knowing what to say. That pre uh, that assumes that there's been time spent studying the word, internalizing the word, developing uh, wisdom in your own soul, so that when the time comes, you have you are prepared to give the right and appropriate advice and counsel and to articulate that. This is the emphasis on answers. What we say brings joy to ourselves and it helps others. Now, there's another way in which the word answer is used in uh, in the book of Proverbs and one that brings out some contemporary application. But it seems, as we go to these two verses, that the word is used in somewhat of a contradictory manner. Proverbs chapter 26, uh, verses 4 and 5. This is one of those uh, little sections that a lot of people may read and say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, This is just one of those places where the Bible seems to contradict itself. And this is part of why Proverbs are written in the way they're written is they're designed not to be just read through very, very quickly, but for us to stop and think about what is being said, to reflect upon what the author is trying to communicate. Remember, in the process of writing a proverb, what the author is doing is taking a, a universal principle and then he is linguistically reducing it to a very short, memorable sort of phrase uh, or poetry so that he can get the point across. So there's a lot involved in writing a proverb uh, correctly, and it implies that the person is going to read it, but also think about what is being said, how it's being said, what the emphasis is. So in Proverbs 26, 4, we read, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And then verse 5 says, seems to contradict that and says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This is a well-known rhetorical device. A Latin phrase is sick at non, yes and no. And it is designed to, to by vir- virtue of the contrast between two things, to bring out certain points and certain elements. And so that's exactly what we see here. And the first verse, do not answer a fool according to his folly, is stating, except with the negative, the same verbiage that you have in verse verse 5. But here it's emphasizing the fact that there are a lot of foolish questions, a lot of questions that uh, assume uh, silliness that can be asked, and they simply are designed to distract the the teacher, to instruct, to distract the wise person, to get him off track, and to just go in in a completely wrong direction. And we're told here that there are questions the fool will ask that are not valid questions; they're not worthy of being answered. 
And that's an important thing to learn in life, especially if you're in any kind of a witnessing situation. There's somebody there that may be a little antagonistic or hostile. They may ask questions that don't need to be answered, that you don't want to validate the question, sort of like being asked if you're still beating your wife or your husband. Uh, However you answer that, you may get yourself in trouble. If you say, yes, I'm still beating my spouse, then you've got one problem. If you say, no, I quit beating my spouse, you've got another problem. You just don't want to answer the question. You want to change the topic. Questions set agendas. And there are some questions that you don't want to answer because you don't want to validate the agenda behind it. Questions are funny things. I've known of theologians who have gone way off course because they have come up with some question related to the a passage of Scripture that's not a good question, and yet they've treated it as valid and significant. Next thing you know, they're just way out of bounds because they're following a, a, an inappropriate, wrong question, a question that has with it a certain amount of, of a skeptical uh, baggage that throws the discussion in a completely wrong direction. So that's what this text is warning us about, is not to validate the questions of the fool. Not every question that people ask is worthy of being answered. I hate to tell you this, but not every question you ask or I ask is worthy of being answered. We often get in situations in life where God doesn't answer our question. That sort of happened to Job. After Job lost everything, he lost his children, he lost his wealth, uh, he lost his health, uh, he finally gets to the point where he's questioning God. Now, why did you let this happen to me? And God then responds, finally, starting in about chapter 37, with a whole series of rhetorical questions for Job, all of which are designed to point to Job that Job knows just less than a, 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 an atom of knowledge in terms of everything in the universe, and God's knowledge is is comprehensive, and God's knowledge is complete of everything, and there's no way that Job can even could understand. The point that God's making is that there's no way that Job could even understand God's answer if he gave it to him. And so he's not going to validate the question. That's hard for us in our arrogance to understand sometimes that we're asking wrong questions because we think that for some reason God is bound in to answer every silly question we come up with. But he's not, and neither are you bound to answer every question that somebody may throw at you. There is a rabbinical proverb related to this, that a fool can ask more than ten wise men can answer. Parents, that goes with children, too. Remember that stage when your children were growing up, and every time you said something, they said, Why? Finally, you just said, go to your room, have a piece of cake or eat some ice cream, distract him somehow from asking all the, all these silly questions. Don't answer all the questions. They're silly, and they're just going to get you distracted. So don't answer the fool according to his own folly, his foolish presuppositions. It won't take the conversation uh, anywhere, and you will have walked into his trap, and you're going to end up being just like him. In contrast, the next verse, verse 5, says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Ah, now what in the world could that mean? 
to answer a fool according to his folly. Well, we're going to get a great example of that uh, this morning and something that has to do with the current events, so we'll get to that in just a second. Answer a fool according to his folly. This means that there are some things that the fool is going to say, and what we need to do is answer them, but in a way that exposes the foolishness of his question, the foolishness of his position. And we're, uh, so we have to have wisdom as to when we do that, but we are also enjoined to do that. This is not unlike the use of the term answer, at least in English, with the uh, concept in First Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. I want you to pay attention to this passage a little bit. We've talked about it here and there a lot. It has to do with the concept known in theology as apologetics. And apologetics doesn't, in English, doesn't have to do with apology. It comes from the Greek word apologeo, which has to do with making a verbal defense of a position or a proposition or a belief. Often it's used in the courtroom to describe someone who is uh, defend, defending their, uh, their innocence in court. It was used of the Apostle Paul when he is presenting a case for Christ uh, before uh, the proconsul in Caesarea and before, uh, and later on before uh, Herod Agrippa II. At any time you present the gospel and answer the question, why do you believe that? You are giving a rational, logical explanation for why you believe what you believe. That is an apologia. So this, in 1 Peter 3.15, Paul says to every single believer without exception, sanctify, which means to set apart the Lord God in your hearts. That means this is a priority from God, and we need to make this uh, special in terms of our own spiritual life. So sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts means that we're walking in the Spirit, walking according to the Holy Spirit, walking by, uh, walking in fellowship with Him, and in a position of experiential sanctification. And then he says, and always, since not on good days, not on bad days, not on just Sundays, but always, always be ready to give a defense. There's our word, apologia, to make a rational, logical presentation or explanation of why we believe what we believe to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So this is being engaged in a conversation, and somebody says, well, that sounds interesting, but why do you believe that? There's just a whole lot of ideas out there in the world today. A lot of people claim that you can have peace and happiness and joy. You just need to go take a yoga class, or you need to get involved in transcendental meditation, or you need to take uh, this hallucinogenic drug, or you need to get involved in this pleasurable activity, or whatever it might be. There's there's a plethora of options available to people today that claim that they're going to make us happy and healthy in a transcendental way. So we have a different hope in Christianity. Uh, hope is a confident expectation. Our confidence is based on something completely different from that which the world offers. Uh, whenever somebody says, well, why do you think that you're right and everybody else is wrong? 
And of course, in today's world, anybody who thinks that they're right and everybody else is wrong is really psychotic and a danger to society. This is coming out more and more. Uh, we don't want anybody who believes in biblical absolutes to uh, to be involved in any position of influence. This is something that's going on in the city of San Antonio right now, if you're not aware of it. Uh, there is a uh, proposition before the city council in San Antonio to uh, ban from serving in public office in the city of San Antonio anyone who does or has ever held to any discriminatory beliefs, including and especially the belief that two people of the same sex uh, should not be married. And so there is uh, more and more people are coming out in opposition to this, and it's becoming uh, more more widely known. But uh, it's amazing that in a town like San Antonio that uh, uh, allegedly has a large Roman Catholic population that you're going to get a city council that's going to try to uh, pass a proposition to exclude Anyone. So you, you may, t- according to the wording of this proposition today, you may be all in favor of uh, same-sex marriage, but if you ever thought it was wrong, you're out. If you've ever believed anything discriminatory, you can't even serve in city government. It's a direct assault on the First Amendment. First Amendment rights of guaranteed free speech and freedom of worship, freedom of what we believe. But this is where we are in our culture today. More and more political assaults that are gaining popularity in some sectors because people don't like Christians. And if you want to understand that a little more, just read some of the reports in the last few weeks about what's going on in Egypt with the persecution of the Copts. Copts are Egyptian Christians. It's a form of, of a very ancient form of Christianity and Eastern Orthodoxy, and they're being persecuted and murdered and tortured uh, by the dozens. And yet there's very little that's being announced on, on the uh, main uh, main media channels. If, of course, somebody says something a little hostile about a Muslim, then that's going to be on all of the news outlets and everything else. But if you know, people are killing Christians, well, we're just that, we, we kind of understand that. Uh, recently I've gotten a number of emails from many of my Jewish friends who are perceptive enough to realize this is just an expansion of something that they've dealt with in terms of anti-Semitism for centuries. And what we're seeing here is that the world is becoming more and more hostile to Christians. The world is becoming more and more hostile to anyone who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they don't want to hear from anybody who might conceivably believe in a creator God who is holy and righteous and is going to tell them that their behavior, uh, that their behavior is wrong. And so we are becoming more and more of a, of a targeted, uh, minority. And it's okay to say something um, something bad about Christians, but you can't say anything bad about about anybody else. So we need to be able to confidently express our convictions in a lot of different ways in a lot of different environments today. Part of this is uh, in terms of witnessing. So anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you, uh, Respond with meekness and fear, not in arrogance, not in anger, not in reaction. I think that's very important today because uh, I sense among a lot of Christians and a lot of uh, conservatives as well, conservative Christians, 
that we're very there's a high level of frustration as we try to articulate our beliefs and which have historically been the foundation of this country and were believed by the majority of people in this country up until the last couple of decades. And with a rise in our level of frustration, we also have a rise in our level of irritation and anger. I know that's certainly true for me at times, and I hear it in many, many others, and we need to not allow that to happen. We need to respond out of out of uh, meekness, humility, and fear, that is, respect for others, and that's the sense of fear. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience. That means that we don't violate our own norms and standards, our own values, our own absolutes, as we express the truth of the gospel, so that when they defame you as evildoers, we live in a world that calls right wrong and wrong right today. And so we are identified as the source of evil. We're, we are the ones who hate everybody. We are the ones who, when we say that uh, certain um, immoral activities are immoral and wrong, then we are guilty of hate speech, and this is going to increase in the coming decades. And so we need to make sure that our behavior is as uh, as correct as possible so that when they defame us as evildoers and those who revile our good conduct may in fact may be ashamed. And then Peter says, for it is better, this is the principle, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing well. So we want to make sure that if we're going to get thrown in jail for something, it's not because we did something wrong, but because we did everything right. That's the idea of whatever it is that you suffer, rejection, loss of a job, whatever the circumstance may be, it's because you, before God, we've done everything, uh, everything right and correct. Now there are different ways in which we can, uh, express an answer to the fool according to his folly. There are many different approaches to uh, this kind of an answer, but one that we find uh, in Scripture as well is one that is called a reductio ad absurdum argument. A reductio ad absurdum argument. I have this written on the screen for you. It's a Latin term to describe a certain form of logic that means to reduce something to the absurd to reduce something to the absurd. So somebody makes a certain statement, and you say, okay, well, let's assume that's true. And if we assume that that's true, let's see what all of the implications are from the truth of that statement. And then you start carrying all of these things out to their logical conclusion, and often you can point out that the results of that would be that if their belief was applied consistently, that this would end up in a completely ridiculous, unlivable situation. And that's often a good tool when we're having a conversation, not a debate, not an argument, conversation with an unbeliever. We say, okay, let's just look at this uh, uh, objectively, and if what you're saying is true, let's see where that takes us. Let's see where that leads us, and we can point out that on the basis of their assumptions about life, they can't even live consistently because it's it's irrational and therefore doesn't won't fit in the reality of of God's world. Jesus used a reductio ad absurdum argument uh several times over the course of his of his uh ministry and one that we can look at briefly is in Matthew chapter 12 
verses 25 through 27. Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 27. Jesus is in the, this is really the climax of his confrontation with the hostility of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In each of the Gospels, we see a period at the beginning of the life of Christ where he's presenting his message, the same challenge that was presented by John the Baptist, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this creates more and more of a conflict with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And so by Matthew chapter 12, they have reached a point where the religious leaders of the Jews are saying that, well, Jesus has this reputation of being a healer. He's casting out demons. Uh, the people are following him. We have to answer his claim. Ah, we've got an answer. He's doing it in the power of Satan. And so that's what the answer is, and they've accused Jesus of really being an emissary of Satan, of be, known as and called Beelzebul here, uh, as Satan, and he is, that's by the power of Satan that he is performing his miracles. And so Jesus, we read in Matthew 12, 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And then he, that's the principle. Then he applies it to what they are saying. If Satan casts out Satan, he is delivered, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He's saying, okay, you've made this assumption. You've articulated this proposition that I'm performing these miracles. I'm really an emissary of, of the devils, and I'm performing these miracles in the power of Satan. Uh, but if that's true, then Satan would be fighting himself. The result of that is that his kingdom would collapse. That's an absurdity. So this is a fallacious argument. We can put it this way. Number one, Jesus is saying if Satan were divided against himself, then his kingdom would be ruined. His second point is then that Satan's kingdom, however, is not ruined, since uh, it's clear from what just had happened in the previous part of the chapter, uh, demonic activity is continuing. So to think otherwise, therefore, would be absurd. Therefore, Jesus says under point three that either, therefore, A, Satan does not drive out Satan. Uh, your uh, assumptions are false. Therefore, Jesus cannot free people from Satan by satanic power. He's used a form of the reductio ad absurdum argument to show that, that their, their attack upon him is fallacious because it contains within it an absurdity. It can't be carried out to its logical conclusion. Also, there's another way, uh, a more subtle way, in which he uses a reductio argument here, in that the Pharisees were also practicing exorcism. Now, Jesus, as we've learned, did not practice exorcism. Exorcism is from the Greek verb exorkizo, and that verb is never used of anything Jesus or the apostles did. They are said to have cast out demons, ekbalo, never exorkizo, only uh, only religious practitioners and magicians and sorcerers are said to have practiced exorkizo. So there's a, there's a distinction there. The Pharisees had a form of exorcism, which they practiced, 
And if they were successful, then uh, it's possible that they too might be driving out demons by Satan. So they must uh, themselves must reject that accusation also as absurd. So uh, therefore, what Jesus is saying is pointing out not only the absurdity of their logic, but that it can't, their logic could be applied in what they're doing, and that would also indicate that they could be performing exorcisms in the power of Satan, showing that they weren't uh, uh, following God either. So in two ways, he's using a very subtle... Jesus' arguments are so simple, yet they're so sophisticated uh, that he usually is able to undercut his opponent in in several different ways, and usually we only see the the, the more surface one. And so uh, we have this example of a reductio ad absurdum uh, argument. Another thing that uh, an example of this that we see today that I think we can learn something from is in relation to what has recently occurred as of last Monday in the state of California. On Monday, the governor, Jerry Brown, the Democrat governor of of, uh, California, signed uh, AB 1266 into law, which will allow for transgender students to choose whether they want to play boys' or girls' sports or whether they want to choose the boys' or girls' locker room or the boys' or girls' restroom. And the foundation for this is the idea that Sexual identity is not physically based in an objective realm, but it is determined by a person's own view of themselves. And so there are some problems with this. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Charlie Clough sent out, I had already seen this, but Charlie sent out a great uh, article that was originally posted on another website, on American Vision website, and this is from a blog written by uh, an English author who wrote also wrote a book called The God Reality, a critique of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and uh, is by the name of Rob Slane. And he has written this on a blog, and it's a great example of how we can use a reductio ad absurdum argument. I want to read just portions of it. It's uh, entitled An Open Letter to the Governor of California on Gender. He opens it, dear, instead of saying dear Governor Brown or Mr. Brown, he says dear Mr. slash Mrs. slash Miss slash Ms. Brown. Skipping a couple of paragraphs, he says, My aim in writing to you is not really to question the law you have signed as such, but rather the thinking which has driven it, transgenderism. I suppose that if one were to accept this as an unquestionable fact, then the decision you have taken would be a logical consequence. You see what he's doing is he's saying, we're going to assume for a moment that what you're saying is absolutely true. If it's true, then what you have done would be a logical result of that. It's logically consistent with the assumption of the uh, legitimacy of transgenderism. But what he's going to do, he's going to point out how that leads to uh, complete uh, absurd conclusions. He says, uh, uh, although, <clears throat> he says one way in which, uh, this the this first one is a reductio ad absurdum as well. And he says, although you could have tackled this another way, you could have built transgender restrooms everywhere instead of imposing transgenderism on everyone else. 
However, I guess you will have ruled this out by the, on the grounds that if the uh, size of California's debt grows any larger, you might have to ask Microsoft to design software capable of handling the sums that big. It is the issue behind the law, the supposed fact of transgenderism, that I really want to question. You see, one absurdity is you, you have two options here, Governor. If you're going to accept the legitimacy of transgenderism, one is you can just build a third restroom everywhere. But you, sit and you know how absurd that is because you can't afford it. You can't pay for it. But I'm going to point out, he's going to point out another absurdity. He said, let me start by asking you a simple question. Are you a man or are you a woman? No, this isn't a trick question. He's, he's, he's being very nice here. He's not being, he's not being tacky or he's being very logical. Are you a man or a woman? No, this isn't a trick question, nor is it designed to be a particularly difficult one either. I'm guessing from all that I've read of you that you would describe yourself as what we call a man. Good so far, but this leads me on to a second question. How can you be sure you are a man? Now, I guess that you are fairly sure that you are indeed a man, but I'm intrigued to know how you arrived at this conclusion. Is being a man an objective status which can be established through the existence of a Y chromosome and also through certain physical characteristics? Or is it a subjective thing that depends on the feelings of a person and can change with time? So he's saying, okay, we're going to take, assume you're right, that there's the legitimacy of transgenderism. Now, how do you really define your gender if that's true? Well, it, 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 you can define your gender either in one of two ways, either on an objective basis of physical characteristics and a Y chromosome or on a subjective feeling. He said, what of the claims that it's an objective status? Let's look at that line of logic first. He's, the writer says, I have five children, three boys and two girls, with a sixth child due next year. With our first child, the moment he was born, the midwife said, it's a boy. Now, without going into too many details, it appeared to us that she had a very good reason for coming to this conclusion. And when my wife and I saw the thing which she based her deduction on, I have to say it didn't occur to us to dispute the issue. <laughs> little humor always helps. The midwife at the birth of our second child came to the opposite conclusion. It's a girl, she said. And her deduction also seemed to be based on just one observation, something that, again, my wife and I decided not to question. And so it has been with every child since. Each time the midwife at the birth has declared authoritatively on the sex of the child, as if there were some kind of measurable and physical sign that put the issue beyond all reasonable doubt. And each time my wife and I have unquestioningly, unquestioningly accepted what they have said, having viewed the evidence for ourselves. Let me ask you, do you think those midwives were wrong to make that authoritative declaration? Do you think they were propagating a falsehood by using an objective observation to declare the sex of the children? Do you think my wife and I should quibble with the midwife at the birth of our next child, asking indignantly, but how can you be sure? Now let's examine the other possibility, that one's sex is subjective and depends upon the feelings of each individual. Quite apart from the fact that we seem to be the first people in the entire span of human history to have discovered this possibility, which will either lead you to believe that our ancestors were all ignorant and stupid, or you might come to a somewhat different conclusion, 
there are a number of other issues which I would be glad if you would come back to me with answers. See, what, there's another reduction out of absurd. If, if you're right, and we're our, our modern culture is right that, that this is true, that gender is a matter of perception, then that means everybody else in history is wrong, crazy, or stupid. That doesn't follow. So that's another form of this, this argument. So he goes on, he says, First, if gender is subjective rather than objective, how do I know that I can trust my feelings to tell me which sex I really am? Have you ever had an opinion that you have held strongly only later to find out that you were wrong? Wrong objectively, that is. Have you ever been misled by your feelings? Undoubtedly, you have, which ought to tell you that the subjective measurement of issues such as this are not likely to be as reliable as you might think. See, in other words, he's pointing out the flaw that we've all made mistakes based upon our perceptions and feelings, so that would apply to this case as well. So how can we use that as a, as a character? That's absurd. Secondly, he says, a gender is not objective, how do we ever really know what gender we are? You think you're a man? How did you arrive at this conclusion? If it is by some kind of objective measurable test, then you must rule out the possibility of transgenderism because sex is fixed. On the other hand, if it is by some kind of subjective feelings a person has, then you must rule out ever truly knowing what sex you really are. You might be a woman trapped in a man's body, but suppressing the truth about yourself. And he goes on and says that one of the problems with this, of course, is that it is leads to a, a false situation called confusion. He says, Jerry, this is a bit of a mess, isn't it? This is what the Bible calls confusion, and I'd say that you have just stirred up the pot of confusion just a little bit more. You're old enough to remember days when life really was much simpler. Men were men. Women were women, and girls could go to the restroom without having to fear that there might be predatory males masquerading as females in their midst. This is a, he makes his point very well, very clearly, and it's a great use of the reductio ad absurdum argument. He's answering a fool according to his folly. He's not letting him get away with the assumptions that he has made, and he's showing that these assumptions lead to a completely distorted and absurd situation. The last thing I want to look at in terms of the positive use of our mouth is the sweetness of our lips, as expressed in Proverbs 16.22. Understanding, uh, it's a second verse up there, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. Proverbs 16.21 states the opening part here. The wise in heart will be called prudent. Prudent is the idea of someone who has understanding. He's uh, able to perceive and regard and get to the heart of a matter and make wise decisions. Uh, sweetness of the lips increases learning. That's a positive thing. It's not being critical. It's not being uh, derogatory, sarcastic. It is talking in terms of that which enhances appetite. It's like using honey in order to create a desire for something, uh, something uh, sweet. Uh, this is a focus in much of Proverbs. Winsome teaching is then related to the idea of a well of life in verse 22. This understanding, same word, prudent, 
as prudent. It's a wellspring of life to those who have it. Now, this concept of a fountain of life or a wellspring of life is often used in Proverbs. Proverbs 10.11 says that the mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. In Proverbs 13.14, we read the law of the wise is a fountain of life to turn away from the snares of death. Notice the contrast between life and death. And then finally, verse uh, Proverbs 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. For Christians, we have a fountain of life, and that begins with the gospel. This is what Jesus was speaking of in John 4, 14, when he met with the woman at the well. And he said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, he's speaking of the gospel. Whoever accepts Christ as Savior, whoever trusts in Christ for eternal life, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the sweetest message that we can ever give somebody to tell them that there is forgiveness of sin, that there is life eternal and that it's not based on our morality, it's not based on our failures, it's based upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that the gospel is very simply, it's good news because there's nothing we have to do to gain it. It's simply by grace through faith, believing Christ died for us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we pray that as we implement what we have learned that we might learn to think and be more conscientious about what comes out of our mouth, that we may think in terms of our conversation, that it may be uh, sweet to the ears of those who hear us, that above all that it may convey the truth of your word, that we might come to understand how to avoid answering the fool according to his folly, but also have the courage in other circumstances and situations to answer the fool according to his folly, to expose his foolishness, to expose the uh, incorrectness, the absurdity of one's position. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom there. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Scripture says, yes, indeed, we can have eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life simply because we know what we believe. And if we believe Jesus died for our sins, at that instant we're born again. We're made a new creature in Christ. It's an irreversible transaction and one that can never, ever be lost. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge and and the Holy Spirit would make clear to each one who's not saved the truth of the gospel that they might respond in faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.